Blog Talk Radio. Hello, folks. It's memory time, Eastern Airlines memory time. Every week at this time, we bring you memories of this great airline from the people who made it the great airline it was, still is, in the minds of its former employees. That's why we enjoy telling these stories every Monday night at 8 p.m. East Coast time. Harry Lindquist, a former Eastern pilot crew scheduler, and myself, Captain Neil Holland, enjoy telling these stories, stories from pilots in the open cockpit mail wing planes into the prop era, and finally into the jet age, hostesses in the first passenger-carrying aircraft, to stewardesses in the great silver fleet of the DC-3s, Martin 404s, DC-4s, 6s, and 7s, and Lockheed Constellations. Finally, as flight attendants in the prop jet Lockheed Electras, the Boeing 720s, 727, 757s, and 747s, to the Lockheed L-1011s. Douglas DC-8s, DC-10s, and the Airbus A300s. In many of these aircraft, Eastern was a launch customer. There were so many firsts for Eastern, it would be hard to tell in the length of these broadcasts. Our maintenance was second to none in the industry. Ditto for the advertising, marketing, and sales, and reservation system, Eastern excelled. Yes, you can say that Eastern was truly a pioneer of many advancements in the airline industry. The story hasn't been completed, as many of us known as the Eastern family haven't completed that story. We would like to hear from you, your story, and memories of Eastern. It's very easy to share them with our listeners on these broadcasts by simply writing them and sending, sending the stories to us at eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D at yahoo.com. We'll record your story and read on the air. Better yet, why not record your story in your own voice and we'll play it on a future broadcast. The recording must be done in the MP3 or WAV format. Send the the copy of the recording send to the above address and we'll have you on the air telling your memories of the greatest airline ever now let's hear what we have recorded for you this week going back to world war ii we're going to learn a play about a place called sweetwater texas this is a story written by eastern captain bill malone 
entitled A Place Called Sweetwater. Excitement mounted at the Navy training base as information filtered down from the operations office that one of the Air Corps' first pursuit aircraft, the Republic P-47 Thunderbolt, would be landing for refueling. The opportunity of seeing this fighter up close was exciting enough, but a woman pilot, a member of the WASP, was flying it. The WASP, or Women's Air Force Service Pilots, as it was called, had its beginning when Jacqueline Cochran, the famous American aviatrix, convinced General Hap Arnold of the Army Air Forces that women could handle non-combat flying duties such as ferrying planes, towing targets, breaking in new engines, or testing repaired planes. Our count was pitifully unprepared at the outbreak of World War II. They destroyed our Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor. Our B-17s and P-40s parked wingtip to wingtip at Clark and Eba airfields were easy prey for the attacking Japanese warplanes. Manila and Bataan had fallen. Few of us had the necessary skills to aid the war effort. We pressed everyone who knew how to fly in this service for the purpose of training new pilots. Time was of such an essence that a military pilot could not be spared to go out to the factory and ferry his plane back to his squadron. It was for this reason that women pilots of the WASP were so vital to the outcome of the war and the American public will be forever grateful for their contribution. Walt Disney and Hollywood cre created Fifanella, the WASP mascot. Avenger Field in Sweetwater, Texas became the only female Army air base in American history and this is where our former REPA president, Gib Guerin, trained members of the WASP to fly military planes. Other REPAs who participated in this endeavor were Dick Corgis, Ed Weirich, Don Smith, Don Clifford, Don Landry, and K.B. Willingham. The women trainees referred to the place as Cochran's Convent. They came from all over the country and from all occupations. Teachers, actresses, secretaries, journalists, heiresses, and housewives to mention a few. Some had, listed, had husbands listed as missing in action. They had to have at least a private pilot's license and 35 flying hours to qualify. All had one thing in common. They loved to fly. There was plenty of opportunity during the six and a half months they spent while receiving training almost identical to that of the aviation cadets. Not only was the training harsh, the summer heat and constant wind was severe. It snowed in the winter. Gib Guerin recalls the rash of forced landings by male cadet pilots as the word spread that there were girl pilots at Avenger Field. Out of necessity, they closed, all, they closed to all outside traffic except in emergencies and the WASP trainees turned all their attention to the task. At the completion of their training, they went immediately to the factory to accept their assignment. The big thunderbolt soared across our Navy base with a deep, throaty roar from its big Pratt & Whitney engine. It laid over into a lazy bank, crossed the runway threshold at idle power, and made a perfect three-point landing. Every eye on the sleek and streamlined airplane as it taxied up to the chocks and the propeller came to a stop. The pilot took off her helmet, revealing her long, chestnut-colored hair that fell down around her shoulders. Confined to the Navy base for an extended period, we thought she was an angel sent from heaven. As we looked at her little open cockpit trainers and compared them with her powerful, streamlined fighter, we felt that surely we could master the coordination of the stick and rudder, which, for many of us, was as difficult as rubbing your stomach and patting your head simultaneously. After the refueling, every hand was up to wave goodbye as she took off. All of us had a feeling of admiration for her splendid flying performance and a feeling of gratitude for the encouragement she gave us by simply being there. We are grateful to Gib Guerin for performing a vital service for our country at the outbreak of the war. Because he began teaching the pilots of the WASP to fly the sophisticated advanced airplanes of the military and for giving us a glimpse into a place called Sweetwater. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. 
Can you think of a major life-changing event that happened to you because you happened to be at the right place at the right time? Maybe that's what happened to legendary Eastern Captain Dick Merrill, who was also an early airmail pilot. This article was written uh, several years ago by Eastern Captain Steve, McDon Steve McDonald. He starts off, I knew Captain Merrill was not in the top few seniority at Pitcairn. I don't have access to that early seniority list. I do have a copy of the first published EAL seniority list some years later. About 320 on that list. I'd have to get it out and look at it. How Cap Captain Merrill was hired. He probably told me this when I was a QB candidate 40 years ago. QB is a term, uh, you can look that up on online if you like. Uh, legend has it that Candler Field was socked in and nothing was flying. Sid Shannon was standing outside in the fog, lamenting to those gathered about our planes not flying. All of a sudden, a mail plane breaks out of the fog and lands. Shannon and the others went over to question the pilot, who was H.T. Merrill, who worked for some outfit that held a Birmingham, Atlanta mail contract. Like all the old mail pilots, they had all their methods of flying using known landmarks, then time, direction, and distance to a specific point. Boeing Air Transport, later UAL's Captain Elroy Jepson, invented the charted navigation system we use now. Merrill's comment was that he saw the College Park water tower down through the fog and knew exactly how to get to Candler Field from there. So he flew the distance and time and let down when he thought it to be the correct time to let down. He hit the airport exactly. Shannon hired him on the spot. Like many have stated, I'd rather be lucky than good. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient. It's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Stewardesses can have a pretty exciting life. This story is from the wings of many. It's by Jill Cotton, and she calls it Strange Voices. This is my story. It's all true. It started in the spring of 1975 when, a flying, when flying a trip sequence from Miami to Atlanta to Los Angeles with a layover returning the same way. It had been a couple of years since the L-1011 had crashed in the Everglades but the stories were still circulating about the ghost on board. I'd been flying this plane for months now and had never experienced an encounter, and I wasn't planning on it now. The first leg of the trip was the 0700 departure out of Miami, and it was a pass rider's dream. My headache was making sure I had enough meals for everyone since I was working the galley position. I got all my meals, and I was a happy camper. I loved working the galley. We landed in Atlanta, and I immediately headed downstairs to make sure the caterer was putting everything in the right place. Now, mind you, I always stayed out of their way when we were on board. With all the carts, plastic bins, liquor kits, and the regular tray carriers to come on board, it was a big job, and it had to get done in a timely manner. By just watching them, I could tell if things were right or not. After takeoff, I went back to the galley and began to work by sending up the necessary carts, for both first class and coach. Then I realized I kept hearing voices every so often. I couldn't place them. By now the meals needed to get placed into the food cart, so I just kept working, but still hearing voices every so often. I finally called up to the flight attendants working in coach and asked if they're trying to get in touch with me. They're in the middle of the beverage service and don't even respond back. I finish up the carts, and now I'm waiting for first-class carts to come downstairs. The first one comes down, and I pull it out to get in the lift and go up to the passenger deck. I went as quickly as I could before they head back front and ask if they've been trying to reach me. No is all I got. We're ready for our food carts now. I head back and send up the food carts. Still, I keep hearing voices, but just every once in a while. 
The service in both cabins is now in full swing, and there's no way I can bother anyone at this time, finding out if they're trying to talk to me. Besides, who else could it be, right? When I finally have an opportunity to leave the galley again, I head for the cockpit. I unlock the door with my key and go in. The guys are busy, so I ask the engineer if they've been trying to reach me in the galley. No, but if you're hearing voices, maybe one of the handsets is connected to the galley and that's what you're hearing. Good idea. I leave and check the headphones. There doesn't seem to be a problem. I head back to the galley, still very much upset by my situation and without a solution. Voices in the galley? That's not a good situation. And all the stories? Coach service is in full operation and I know they'll need more food. Besides that, the first-class dessert carts need to get set up. Stripping the carts and then setting them up for their next use is quite intensive. There's all the china plates, silver service, and dessert items. I have the large compartment bins that hold the tray carriers. I have to open and redo the linens, get the coffee cups and saucers out of the bins, set up each shelf from top to bottom. The voices are louder now. I know the crew is just above me because food carts are starting to come down to be exchanged for fresh ones. I know I'm not losing it, or am I? The first dessert cart is done. Now to set up the second one. I get the linens on, next the liquor kit, the china service is all set, and all of a sudden I hear a voice. I look up and I see it. The caterer's walkie-talkie. By now I'm laughing and I had been so worried. I finished setting up the cart, and I went back upstairs in the cockpit and told the guys my story. We all had a good laugh. I went back down and completed the service without another voice. By now, you have to understand, a person can get a lot of mileage out of a story like this, and I sure did. With the best poker face I could muster, I milked it. One flight engineer, Bob Abbott, a good friend got so mad at me that I thought he was going to explode before I got to the punchline. But wait, that's not the end of the story. Years later, I was working a flight sequence, 500-501, out of Miami to San Francisco. It was 1979. It was a cold and rainy night as we were leaving San Francisco. And, of course, I was working the galley on the L-1011. Catering had already been on board and had finished loading. So I went to work to get the first items that would be needed for the pre-departure setup. A small, timid catering supervisor came aboard through the side galley door to check my supplies and deliver any extra meals I might need. He seemed very nervous and apprehensive to even be on board the plane. I asked if there was a problem. As he started to explain while continuing to check the supplies, he said he was scared to death of the voices on Eastern's L-1011s. As, I, as he continued, I realized it was my story he was telling. I started smiling, trying not to laugh, but I couldn't help myself. In a very straight face, I told him that this was a fine airplane and nothing was going to happen. He looked at me and asked why, and with a very calm voice, I said, because that was me. He turned white as a ghost. He ran off the catering truck, lowered it, and took off. I had to close the door and make sure it was secure. From what I understand, he quit his job that night. Now that's the rest of the story.
This story comes us to us from the best of repartee, and we might, most of us might identify with this story, maybe to a lesser degree, maybe to a greater degree. We can look back on our life and, and uh, look for things that we struggled with. This uh, story is titled, My Struggles to Become a Pilot by Eastern Captain Gene Ramsey. April 1st, 1978, I hung up my flight cap and put away my pilot uniform, terminating nearly 36 years in the airline cockpits. Those years, along with 18 months preceding them, were filled with struggle, triumph, heartbreak, and happiness. Now that it's over, I'd like to tell you about it with the thought you might find a message in it, which may be of help to you or someone you know. My first memory of airplanes was in 1924 in San Antonio, but I wasn't thinking much about them when my grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Jim Purcelli moved to Mason Creek near Bandera. I was in a small boy's western heaven. All I dreamed of was cowboy boots and ten-gallon hats. For me, nothing was more wonderful than the early morning dew, which glistened as the sun's rays rose over the hills. I had very happy years growing up at the family ranch with my horse, rifle, chaps, boots, and spurs. In 1937, however, I left my beloved ranch for college. Not knowing the responsibility of adulthood was about to rob me of the life I loved so well. I still wasn't thinking of, of trying when I entered college since I had the notion I wanted to be a musician. Fortunately, fate changed things. November 1940, President Roosevelt, aware war was coming, was quietly preparing the Naval Air Corps was giving physicals for air cadets on my Northwestern University campus. At 22, and not having experienced disappointment, I had yet to learn that you have to butt up against failure, sometimes, many times, before you taste sweet success. With confidence, I submitted myself to the cadet physical, which went well, including the eye exam. Both eyes were excellent, with normal vision. The second day, I returned for the eye dilation test. Drops were put in my eyes to temporarily paralyze the muscles of accommodation. I was all, it was all new to me, so when I was called to the chair, I had no idea what would happen. The doctor said, read line 10. I can't make it out, I answered. He then put a lens in front of my eye, the maximum correction to pass the test. Read it now, he said. I can't make it out, I answered innocently. The doctor looked at me, somewhat startled. Son, he said, I'm sorry, but you're not good enough. What do you mean? I exclaimed. I had 20-20 in both eyes yesterday. He looked down at his papers. That's true, he answered. You've got normal vision now. But when you're 35, you'll be wearing thick glasses. I thought for a second. Well, how long is this damn war going to last? I snapped back. At this, the doctor chuckled. You're right, he said. You're okay for air cadet. But at present, they want me to get the cream of the crop. Later on, if they lower requirements, you'll be a good candidate. Trying to describe my, my emotions is difficult. They were somewhere between frustration and desperation and a certain determination. Being determined, however, isn't always enough. Luckily, I was not without the guidance to channel my determination. In 1938, I had read a book entitled Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It became the guiding light of my life. Hill said many thought-provoking things, two of which became engraved on my brain. Never give up, he said, because the very time you might give up might have been the time just before you would have succeeded. I did not know how many times in future years these words would ring in my ears. He also quoted a poem, Author Unknown, which said, in part, If you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, it's almost certain you won't. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man. Sooner or later, the man who wins is the man who thinks he can. This poem became part of me, second nature. I ate, lived, slept, and breathed every word of it, thinking it was the word of life beyond the slightest doubt. It was a natural following the Navy cadet failure for me to try again to be the pilot I had resolved I wanted to be. 
It was to be a rocky road I had chosen, but somehow I managed to be undaunted. Napoleon Hill also said if you erased the word no from your vocabulary, your subconscious mind would be unable to cope with the unresolved situations you would follow and would proceed to find a way to make the answers yes just to resolve things. I believed him irrevocably. I then decided to pursue the Army Air Corps. The physical went okay, including the eye test, which didn't include eye dilation. I mused that the Army was smarter than the Navy. They knew the damn war wouldn't last 13 years until I was 35. However, they found a deviated septum and said I'd have to get it straightened before they could accept me. This meant the divider between my nostrils was crooked. Today, I know it's a simple operation, but in those days, I feared it because others I knew had suffered after the operation. Refusing the operation, I was now shot down from the Army Air Corps. I was under pressure to make a choice between my draft board eventually would force a choice anywhere, anyway, and I reasoned with resignation that if I had to die, I preferred to die up in the air when it was dry instead of a muddy foxhole. My dad, aware of my dilemma and what I wanted, called my attention to another program for training pilots, a civilian pilot training program. I investigated, learning it was available. The government would train civilian men to become pilots who would agree to work as a flight instructor, a ferry pilot, or an airline pilot. Eager for any of the three, I applied and passed a physical which did not have the dreaded eye dilation test. CPT had four parts. Number one, primary flying course. Number two, secondary course. Number three, cross-country course. Number four, instructor course. Completing all four would put me well on the way to becoming a professional pilot. The primary course was 35 hours of flight with a private pilot's license when completed. It required much study and flight training. My progress was average, but I struggled with the classwork. I soloed in July 1941, studying hard for a five-part written test soon to come. When it came, I passed the four parts needed to get my pilot's license, but failed a fifth part needed to be eligible for the secondary course. I asked for another chance, which was given me. I burned the midnight oil for a week till I was sure I had the subject matter down cold, then I took the test again. I was shocked beyond belief when I failed it again. The CPT officials said I was finished, but I pleaded with them for another chance. I was told I would need special permission from a higher authority in another town to take the test again. I hitchhiked to that town, 200 miles away, pleading for one more chance. Okay, I was finally told, you want it so badly, I'll give you one more chance. But you must make a grade in the 90s this time to continue the CPT program. Any pilot who has ever taken a government multiple choice test knows the dilemma I was in with the test. Out of four answers, only one was right, but sometimes all four seemed correct. After marathon studying, I took the test again, making a grade of 97, securing for me the secondary course of acrobatic flying at Sky Harbor Airport in Chicago. I was dismayed to learn that I faced another physical now, which included the eye dilation. I got a job working a soda fountain in downtown Chicago to earn my food and money enough to pay for a bunk room at the Y so I could take eye exercises from a doctor who claimed he could strengthen the eye muscles. Dad loaned me the money for the fees. I went faithfully to him for two weeks and then submitted myself to the physical and to eye dilation again. With the drops in my eyes, the doctor set me in a chair. Read line 10, he said. I tried hard but those little muscles in my eyes were paralyzed. I can't quite see it, I answered. He then put the maximum corrective lens in front of my eye. Read line 10 now, he said. It was futile. I can't quite see it, I said again. The doctor looked at me with some surprise and consternation. Son, he said, your eyes aren't good enough to be a pilot. He could see the disappointment in my face. I know how badly you want to be a pilot, he went on. Lots of men would like to be pilots, but they don't have the qualifications. Look at me, he pointed. I wear glasses, too, and I'd like to be a pilot, but I can't because I don't have the eyesight. I tried to argue that I did not wear glasses and had normal 20-20 vision uncorrected, but he seemed to ignore my comment. You might as well face it, son, he added. Give up this idea and choose something else. 
I got out of the chair, my emotions in turmoil, starting toward the door. Just as I stepped outside, I heard a voice say, Just a minute. I turned. It was the doctor's secretary. She handed me a small piece of paper which read, Come back Friday night, same time. I didn't get much sleep that night as I pondered my fate, wondering what her note meant. Determined to find out, I went to see her the next day. I came to ask what your note meant. The doctor last night was a substitute doctor, she said. My doctor is much nicer, and I think you'd have a better chance to pass the physical with him. I studied her carefully, explaining I had normal vision without dilation. For example, I continued, I could see every letter on that chart in the next room with the lights were on in there. I, I was motioning toward the chart I had tried to read under dilation the night before. She looked toward the next room, saying, Well, that's no problem. As she reached to the wall and turned them on, I sat there, and while talking to her, I copied all the letters on a small piece of paper. I will never know if she knew I was doing it, but I knew it probably changed the course of my life. On that Friday night, after becoming very familiar with all the letters I had copied, I returned for the physical, which I passed without incident. For some people, there might have been a moral issue here, but for me there was none. I knew I had normal vision under normal circumstances, and that's all that mattered to me. I knew what I wanted. As far as I was concerned, the end justified the means. I have wondered many times without the eye exercises whether the eye exercises finally helped me or did I simply know what was on the chart. I can't ask to answer that question, but I know anyone can see better when they actually know what they're looking for. That's the end of part one of this story. Stay tuned for part two. Ryan, look! There's a new kind of plane! That's Eastern's new Boeing 727 jet. Look how high the tail is! 34 feet. Look where they put the jets. In the tail assembly. That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth riding home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce. Prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet. Quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. This is the second part of My Struggles to Become a Pilot by Gene Ramsey. It was September 1941. The secondary course trainer was an open cockpit Wacol U. PF7. Five instructors were assigned four students each. My instructor, Bill Morse, was a tough-looking, coarse, hard-talking man with a rugged complexion who always looked a little angry. Buoyed by Napoleon Hill's Law of Success philosophy, I been, began training with him without premonitions. After four hours, he soloed me in the UPF7, and then, for unknown reasons, all hell broke loose. He turned violently against me. The only communication in the airplane was through a tube from the front cockpit where he sat to the rear cockpit where I sat. He would yell in this tube for me to do a specific maneuver as I was doing it. He screamed like a madman into the tube, cussing me with profanity I'd never heard. Pounding his head wildly with both hands, he screamed more profanities into the tube, managing to include that I was the dumbest, most stupid idiot he'd ever seen in an airplane. This went on through every training session. I did the best I could and held my silence. Then one day he said, I'm taking you up for a washout ride. I didn't know the procedures for washing out a student, so I remained silent. On this washout ride, his wild antics and insane profanities continued. When he came down, I didn't think I had done badly. He said, I'm taking you up for another washout ride tomorrow. He kept his word. You've got one more washout ride with the chief pilot tomorrow, he yelled at me. You know what the result will be, don't you? He answered it for me. You'll be washed out of this course. Through all this, I'd kept my calm, although fuming inwardly, more each day. When he told me I was scheduled in the final washout ride, I thought it was prearranged. Set up. So I said to myself, I'll show the SOB he can't do this to me. I'll quit first. 
That night I boarded a southbound train for home. As it clicked along the tracks, I reflected on my decision, moving to the smoker to puff on a cigarette. I sat by an older man chewing on a cigar. We talked, and I told him my story. He listened in silence, finally removing the cigar from his mouth. He said, young man, I think you made a mistake. What do you mean, I inquired, grateful to talk to someone about it. Well, the way I see it, he replied, the only way you could have won was to take the final track ride and pass it. Yeah, you're right, I mumbled slowly. Realized I had allowed Napoleon Hill's strength to slip through my fingers. The train stopped about two hours out of Chicago. It was midnight when I got off. I slept on the station bench until the northbound train came by, which I boarded and returned to Chicago. I was at the airport at 8.30 a.m. for a check ride. Huh? I thought you left, Bill Moore said when he saw me. Nah, I answered. I'm here to take my check ride. The chief pilot was a soft-spoken, quiet man. He told me to take off and climb to 5,000 feet. I did so. He said, make a 90-degree turn to the right. I did. My teeth gritted a little in determination. Now one to the left, came his voice through the tube again. I did it with firmness in my movement of the controls. Okay, now climb to 6,000 feet in a 360-degree turn to the right. I did it with continued grimness. This went on for about 30 minutes, during which time I had only heard his voice as I looked at the back of his head, covered with helmet and goggles. But now, for the first time, he turned around, smiled at me as he said into the tube, There's nothing wrong with you, son. Let's go back to the field. I think I would have been less stunned if, I had, if he had flucked me, but I was happy to give it much thought. When we were stepping into the pilot lounge, he said to the scheduler, This man is okay, advancing to stage two. Bill Morris, sitting in the room, watched and heard it all in silence. But something happened. He never tried to wash me out again. He never cussed me or pounded on his head again in my training. By the time I finished the course, we had become friends. I always believed he had tried to eliminate one of his students to make his training schedule lighter. When it failed, he accepted me as a legitimate airman. Perhaps also, he liked me better when he, when he saw that I wasn't a quitter. The cross-country and instructor courses were completed in Toledo, Ohio. The Army was already telling us what to do as we finished the courses in July of 1942. All instructors to students will be assigned immediately upon completion of training to light plane glider schools. This meant I would finally be self-supporting. I wrote the good news to my dad. I knew he had been suffering in silence as he sent me the money for quite some time. It also meant I would now begin working in the war effort, although the war seemed far away. We were sent to Antigua, Wisconsin, where we all became flight instructors for Army students who were to become glider pilots after 35 hours of light plane training from us. I loved northern Wisconsin in the summer, and I enjoyed my work as a flight instructor. At this time, I made a cru crucial decision that I wanted aviation to be my life's work. Having decided this, I pondered the question, what kind of flying would be permanent enough for a lifetime? The answer came from the other instructors, which I overhead, overheard them talking about TWA hiring pilots. They rejected the job because it would be a pay cut, but I quietly arranged a trip to Kansas City for an interview. TWA offered me a job, provided I could get my release. I learned quickly that I was glued to the instructor work for the duration, but checking further, I learned if I went to higher authority, I might have, might have turned this release. But this man was in faraway Wichita, Kansas. Napoleon Hill taught me never assume no, so I took a few days off to make the trip. He turned out to be an army officer of considerable rank. I pleaded my case to him. He looked at my papers and studied them for a moment. Turning to me, he asked, If I release you to the airline job, will you stay with it for the remainder of the war? I nodded my assent, and he continued, Okay, I'll release you because the airline job is just as essential as the instructor work. He signed the papers and handed them back to me. I was walking on air when I left his office. I later learned how lucky I'd been to release to, to the airline job. None of the instru other instructors had been so lucky. TWA kept me in training several months. Finally, I went on the line as the first officer, co-pilot, in a DC-3, June 1943. 
It was a difficult transition for me. I was now under the close scrutiny of each captain I flew with, and I had no large multi-engine experience. After a few months, I began to catch on to the flying and co-pilot duties, but I ran into personality problems with some of the captains, one in particular who had taken a strong dislike to me. I was aware of it, but I seemed powerless to turn his feelings around. He didn't cuss at me as Bill Morse had done, but he made the job miserable for me with remarks like, we don't have much to say about whom they hired, but we have a lot to say about whom they keep. He was saying the company might hire, but the captains do the firing. New co-pilots on the airlines are on probation for one year. On TWA, at the end of that year, the captains make their recommendations on each probationary pilot. In spite of extreme and sustained effort on my part, this one captain was instrumental in seeing that I would be discharged. On April 29, 1944, I received the following letter. It is a consensus of a pilot selection board composed of pilot personnel and representatives of the chief pilot's department of the Central Division based on fitness reports submitted by captains with whom you have flown during the past year that you do not possess all the necessary qualifications to eventually check out the airline captain status. I am therefore sorry to inform you that your services with TWA are being terminated June 3, 1944, and you will be granted a release without prejudice. If you desire a release prior to June 3rd, please advise your division chief pilot and it will be granted. Please turn in all com company property. Signed, Chief Pilot. I was stunned beyond my ability to describe. My bride of only a few months, Betty, took it more calmly than I did. With the passing of time, I became bitterly determined to find another first officer job with one of the other airlines. When I filled out the application to American Airlines, handed it to the personnel man, he looked at it, blurting out to me, What makes you think you'd work for American as a pilot after being fired by TWA? American has the best pilots in the world. If you weren't good enough for TWA, you couldn't possibly be good enough for American. With that, he showed me where the door was. When I talked to United Airlines, the personnel man was more kind. He said, Young man, you're an excellent applicant. You've got everything they tell me to look for. You have a college degree, a commercial pilot's license, instrument rating, good flight time, and you're a clean-cut person. But I can't hire you because you have a black market against you. You've been fired by another airline. My company won't let me hire you. I find it hard to believe this was happening to me because I knew in my heart I was good enough for this career. Then I heard about a co-pilot job available, flying B-24 bombers and test ops. I quickly applied and was accepted by Chief Pilot Captain Harry McKay, who himself had been on the airline. Test hopping the B-24s was interesting, plus the fact it was a four-engine airplane, which meant I was building my background as a pilot. One day, while visiting the tower operator, he asked me why I didn't seek an air job, airline job. I said I wanted one, but had not located one. I didn't tell him about my TWA discharge. He said, I've heard Easton is hiring. Why don't you contact them? They're a good outfit. Thank you, I certainly will, I told him. That night, I sent a telegram to Eastern Airlines receiving an immediate reply. Three months had elapsed since leaving TWA, giving me ample time to analyze what went wrong. I also knew when I talked to Eastern, I would have to tell them about my time with TWA. I handed my application to Captain Jack Lambie, who looked it over, saying, I see you were with TWA. Yes, sir, I replied. Why did you leave them, he asked. I was discharged at the end of the probationary year, I answered as calmly as I could. Oh, he said softly and then adding, would you like to tell me about it? Yes, sir, I would. I told him I was new in the situation where I had to get along with someone else in such close quarters as an airline cockpit, and I made mistakes. Looking back on it, I think I know what those mistakes were, and if I could get another chance, I didn't think I would make them again. Captain Lambie thought for a minute and then said, Well, we'll let you take all our tests in the physical. After you've completed them, come back to see me again. I completed it, but Captain Lambie sent me back to my B-24 job. I thought I'd been rejected again, but I bombarded him with letters and telegrams until finally in November 1944, he hired me. It was the beginning of a 33-and-a-half-year career, working for a company being guided into greatness by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. After six and a half years as first officer, 
I was promoted to captain on March 15, 1941, and began as flight captain on DC-3. In the years that followed, I flew the DC-4, DC-6, DC-7, DC-8, Lockheed Constellation, Lockheed Electra, Martin 404, Boeing 720, Boeing 727, and then for more than two years at the end of my career, I flew the Lockheed L-1011 jumbo jet. My total flying time exceeds 22,000 hours. Eastern Airlines was very different to work for than TWA had been. Captain Eddy called it the Eastern family, and I am extremely happy to have been a part of that family. I feel lucky to have been part of a, such a great company. On my final day, I was pr proud to receive a plaque with the following words. In recognition of the years of endeavor and devoted service to Eastern Airlines, we proudly present this award of appreciation to Captain E.S. Ramsey upon retirement from the company, 1944-1978. Signed, Frank Borman, Chairman of the Board and President. I'm sure it's only natural to look back on your life after you retire. I do, and I find all my thoughts are happy thoughts. I'm happy that I was able to give my last full measure of devotion to the company, which had given me another chance. In retrospect, I think about all the struggles I had as I fought for a flying career. I failed physicals, I failed written exams, I failed flight tests, and was fired by one airline. But I always bounced back, and I'm sure the magic of Napoleon's Hill, Think and Grow Rich, gave me the strength to turn every failure into success. To success. Now I have time again for the Bandera Hills I love. Perhaps again I will enjoy the dew as it glistens in the morning sun. I hope the story of my career here may help others to know their ambitions can be attained. First, be sure your dream is possible. Then don't take no for an answer. It will make some kind of magic happen. It did for me. It can for you. Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. During our Memories broadcast every Monday evening, we like to turn the pages all the way back to 1927, uh, Pitcairn Wing, and then when it was sold to Eastern Air Transport, and the newsletter, which was titled Newswing. I'm reading now from the May 1931 issue of a very special event. It reads, George Washington over Mount Vernon. On a beautiful spring day late last month, while the cherry blossoms along the Potomac were a blaze of color, one of the big 18-passenger Curtis Condor airliners of Eastern Air Transport was christened the George Washington. Miss Nellie Viverka, daughter of the Czechoslovakian ambassador, broke the bottle of water drawn from the well at Mount Vernon on the propeller hub and spoke the words, I christened thee George Washington. The affair was held on the Washington Hoover Airport in Washington under the auspices of the Executive Committee of the Festival of Nations. Many of the social set, including ambassadors and legation attaches, were among the guests. The christening was the principal event at a flying tea given by the executive committee. When the ceremonies were over, 255 of the guests were taken aloft in the plane for short flights over the city and over Mount Vernon. The craft was then placed in regular service 
on the New York-Washington-Richmond section of the Eastern Air Transport System and daily looks, daily looks down upon Washington's old homestead. The Festival of Nations is a Girl Scout affair, and many of these young ladies were at the airport for the flying tea. Music was provided by the Girl Scout Bugle and Drum Corps and by two high school bands. Fifteen foreign Girl Scouts dressed in their native costumes were in attendance, and all took flights in the George Washington. Now, another article appearing in that same issue, May 1931, was an article about Will Rogers. And that article reads, Will Rogers on Tour. Well, I was flying to New York from Florida today on the splendid Eastern Coast Airline, a great route over a beautiful country from Jacksonville with stops at Savannah, Charleston, Florence, Raleigh, where my uncle Josephus Daniels met me, and Richmond. I saw many old friends along the way. Well, when I got to this town, I saw a dome, so I figured it must be a capital. So I got off just through force of habit, and sure enough, it was a capital. But you wouldn't think it would from the ones I had visited in the past. This is the quietest night I have spent. Managua, with its earthquake, has got it on most of these. Maybe I can show him how to start a revolution tomorrow. When he left Washington for Atlanta, the famous humorist was en route to Los Angeles via Eastern Air and the Southern Transcontinental Route of the American Airways. He addressed the newspaper publisher's convention in New York before flying southward and was entertained at a dinner in Atlanta. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. This story is called Who's Your Daddy by Jean Liebenfrost. It's from the book The Wings of Many. After only three months of flying experience, the office asked if I would consider becoming a stewardess supervisor. Five years of dull office work had preceded my last job at U.S. Rubber Research. Why would I ever give up this chance to explore the world? With that refusal, they asked if I would consider doing some publicity, like a career class for high school. Well, okay, that might be fun, so I agreed. Arriving inbound from my flight with short notice, minimal rest, and a uniform that needed dry cleaning, and an empty gas tank, I was handed an unfamiliar destination. It was 100 miles away, and I had to be there the next morning. At daybreak, I grabbed two hard-boiled eggs and two therapeutic vitamins and set out to find Morristown, New Jersey High School. At the high school, the director gave me their plan, girls in the morning, lunch at noon, and a boys' class in the afternoon. The girls were enthusiastic, full of questions and awe, which helped since I had no plan or brochures to distribute. The time zipped by, and at the end of the class, one sweet young girl, beaming with smiles, said, My dad's an Eastern Airline captain. Oh, who's your dad? She gave me his name, and I told her I had flown with him just about two weeks before. She added, My brother's in the next class. Lunch consisted of a salad and a delicious chicken rice casserole prepared by the culinary students. They deserved an A+. Now, bring on the boys. They looked so bored. It was a punishment to have to listen to a stewardess. So I wanted to get them talking instead by questioning about the careers they were considering. Every career they mentioned had a possible employment in the airlines. Plus, comparable pay, security, good insurance, and health coverage, free passes and travel discounts for family and spouses, 
and best of all, a family of 13,000 people who treated each other as teammates for everyone's success. Now I present my question. Does anyone here have a relative working for the airlines? A young man whose enthusiasm equaled his sister's beamed the answer. My dad's a captain and I'm going to be a pilot, of course. My career course was a success. About five years later, working on a Boeing 727, as I handed the manifest to the captain, a voice from the right pilot seat said, Hello, Jean. My student, now a pilot. What a refreshing reunion. Fast forward a few more years. Here I am, still a flight attendant, but feeling suddenly middle-aged. That young man had achieved his captain qualification. Young Captain Stowe was in command of our flight. Like an old mother hen, I assured him, Son, if you have any problems I can help you with, I'll be right here. I returned to my job, leaving him to explain that relationship to his co-pilot. I was so proud of him. Well, that's all we have for tonight. Harry and I hope you have enjoyed this little bit of Eastern history. Much has been written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines and by others in books, newspapers, magazines, and newsletters of the several Eastern Organization publications. They're doing their part in keeping the legacy of a great airline alive and well, even after the more than 30 years since its last flight. Why not add your memories to our Monday night broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline as told by its people and friends? Just send us your story and we'll read it on a future broadcast. Better yet, record it and send to e neil holland at yahoo.com. That's e neil n e a l holland at yahoo.com. It must be in a wake file or correction wave file format or an MP3 format. Your recording recording will be part of the show in your own voice. Now until next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Harry Lindquist and Neil Holland hope you have a safe and beneficial week. So long, Eastern family. <laughs>